welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two. It is season two, episode 19. And on today's podcast, I talk to historian Professor Tobias Kelly, Professor of Political and Legal Anthropology at the University of Edinburgh. We discuss the motivations of British conscientious objectors during the Second World War. This is based on his most recent book, Battles of Conscience, British Pacifists in the Second World War. Tim spoke to me from his office in Edinburgh. Toby, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in conscientious objectors during the Second World War? Well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for having me. I'm a... Uh, an anthropologist uh, by training uh, and therefore deeply interested in, so the cliche goes, how we make the familiar uh, strange and the strange familiar. And, and, and conscientious objectors have always seemed to me at once deeply familiar, something you can recognise as a personality type, as, a, as an historical phenomena, but also deeply strange. Uh, deeply uh, baffling and intriguing and surprising. So they seem uh, kind of a fundamentally anthropological uh, group of people. Uh, so that's the kind of general why I find them interesting as an anthropologist rather than as a historian. And uh, But more particularly, I was a long, long time ago now, probably 10 years or so ago now, I was in the National Archives in Kew and being uh, an anthropologist rather than a historian, I was rather blundering around and ordering up documents for a completely different project. Um, and I ordered up the wrong files. Uh, and uh, because it takes another hour uh, to order up the right files, I decided I was going to go through what those files uh, uh, were. And they were these applications from the Second World War of uh, conscientious objectors applying for exemption for military service. They were very short, they were about half a page, and they said, please give your reason for uh, applying for exemption. And then within this very bureaucratic form, people had to describe, declare, explain their most intimate and personal, deeply held beliefs. And I was fascinated. There were hundreds of them, uh, and I just kept on going through them. And I suppose I've been following those documents uh, ever since, trying to work out who these people were, uh, why they did what they did, uh, and probably equally importantly, what other people made of them. Which brings us neatly on to the next question, which is, could you start by giving us a rough idea of the scale and extent of active non-participation by um, British citizens during the Second World War in, in terms of how many people were officially non-compliant or, or maybe refusing military service? It's a good question, and that's a, that's a short answer and, and a long answer, as your kind of your question kind of implied. The short answer is... 
uh, we think around uh, 60,000 people applied for exemption, although there were other ways, of course, which we might want to talk about later, of being non-compliant, of avoiding uh, uh, carrying a weapon. Um, uh, uh, and about 10% of these, although the best suggestion is that this is a massive um, underestimate, were, were, were women. So 90% male, 10% uh, uh, female. When they introduced later on in the war a, 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 a form of conscription uh, for women, uh, although in practice it was much more difficult for women to to, to register. So we're talking roughly about 60,000, uh, which interestingly is over three times as many as in the First World War, although it's the First World War conscientious objectors that kind of dominate the, the public imagination. Um, and I think we're slightly, and I think the reason for this is we're slightly unsure what to make of the Second World War conscientious objectors. For, for for many people, and I recognise not for everyone, yeah, the 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 First World War was a was a mistake. It was a horror. It was a tragedy, and therefore, if you're a conscientious conscientious objector, you 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 can somehow be held up as someone who saw through the the horror and the pity and waste of war. Second World War, as the cliche goes, is is the good war. Uh, so how could you be someone who, who opposed the fight against fascism and the Nazis? Um, so we're a bit more uncomfortable about them and therefore we, there's less public attention on them, I think. So how, how did the British state deal with such people and were the legal and administrative procedures different from those uh, used during the Great War? You've just touched on that uh, and the different yeah. perceptions of them. So it's perhaps easiest to start with the First World War, and then I can explain the differences uh, 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 with the Second World War. So the First World War, you, you had you had to appear before a tribunal, uh, and the tribunal was made up of military officers, uh, often clergy, uh, and the kind of the great and the good of, of, of the area. And there are regional tribunals all across the country, and you had to uh, write a short document just as the documents I was describing earlier and then you had to appear often for no more than 10 minutes or so before the tribunal and explain to them that you were uh, a genuine and sincere conscientious objector to bearing arms and interestingly in Britain unlike almost anywhere else it didn't define what conscience meant uh, so many other places conscience was linked to particular types of religious faith and much more specifically particular types of Protestant Christian faith. So you have to be a Quaker or Seventh-day Adventist or, or, or Christelphian, uh, uh, for example. In Britain they left that vague, partly because uh, in order to get uh, the clause, the law through Parliament at the time, they had to get on liberals and socialists and other atheists who wanted other thoughts of conscientious objection. So you had to go and persuade them that your conscience was genuine, sincere. And in the First World War, because there were often military officers on the tribunal, uh, it was really, really hard. Very few of them were given uh, exemption. Uh, because the tribunals often thought of themselves as a, as basically a recruiting sergeant. Um, so lots of people were sent to prison or jail or had a very tough time. Uh, 
the by the Second World War, the British state had learned quite a lot of lessons uh, from that. Chamberlain famously said, you know, we, we learnt it was an exasperating waste of time uh, to try and force these people, you know, a square peg into a round hole. And given that the numbers were relatively small, uh, they thought there wasn't necessarily an advantage for anyone to, to try and force these people into the military. Uh, in, in a kind of manpower planning uh, sense, although there may have been a moral sense. Um, so the tribunal shifted, no longer military officers. They were now a different type of local worthy. They were often still clergymen, um, uh, trade unionists, um, uh, often academics, which is interesting. You know, these are seen as being the people who had um, uh, ethical insight. I'm not sure that would necessarily be the case in the in the 21st century. Um, so setup was relatively similar, uh, but on the whole, um, the tribunals were re I suppose relatively more sympathetic towards conscientious objectors and more willing to categorise them as sincere and genuine. And, and we can talk about the exceptions to that and how you had to prove. Uh, you, you were a conscientious objector, called what type of conscience counted uh, later, if, if that would be interesting. But on the whole, they were willing to give you an exemption on one crucial condition, that you were willing to do something. So you had to do some type of alternative service. So the vast majority of people who came were granted exemption on the grounds they did some kind of alternative service, ambulance work, uh, uh, forestry work, farming, um, volunteering in hospitals uh, and so on. And as long as you were willing to do that, to show that you were, as, I, as, as I've written about, willing to participate in the, the kind of the, the moral economy of sacrifice, to show that you were willing to do something difficult um, uh, during the war, you were given an exemption. And, and on the whole, uh, uh, most conscientious objectors were were willing to do that because they didn't see themselves as radically different as somehow outsiders they saw themselves as as loyal british citizens uh but, but simply in, who did not want to take arms indeed many of them argued that um it was a deeply British thing to have a freedom to have freedom of conscience. If we were fighting the war against fascism and the Nazi party, one of the reasons we were doing it, so the rhetoric went, at least, was uh, to protect individual freedom. And freedom of conscience was one of those key uh, freedoms that needed protecting. So it would be deeply contradictory to fight fascism and not protect freedom of conscience. Now, of course, in practice, there were all sorts of limitations and contradictions and tensions within that, but that's the, that was the basic line that many people took. So what were the sort of general motivations for people to refuse some form of military service, i.e. carrying a weapon? Um, multiple and varied. One of the interesting things, one of the reasons why they're so fascinating and so frustrating uh, for a researcher is there is no kind of, Making a generality about them is, is very, very difficult. So they varied massively. So you, you, you had, um, for example, uh, anarchists and socialists who would object to bearing arms in the, because this was uh, an imperialist war and they were against capitalist militarism. They often had quite a lot of difficulty before the tribunal. You had 
Scottish and Welsh and sometimes Indian nationalists who would say, well, we will fight, but we won't fight for a British army, we will fight for a Scottish or a Welsh army. Uh, or uh, uh, in, in the case of Indian nationalists, this simply isn't our war. Um, um, but the bulk of them were, and, and then you just had kind of libertarians more generally who would say, I'm against compulsion, I don't, I don't mind war, uh, but I don't, don't want to be told to fight. I'll volunteer to fight, but you can't conscript me to fight. So, um, uh, but the vast majority of them had some kind of humanitarian or pacifist motivation, and that could take many forms. Uh, it could take a socialist form, it could take a Gandhian form, but the majority of them were, should we say, a particular type of Christian pacifist, often a Christian socialist pacifist who came from uh, uh, across uh, Quakerism, Methodism, Baptism, Church of England, and their, their line was often, we must live a life in the example of, 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 of Christ, and Christ said, thou shalt not kill, and therefore we must do the same in our, in, in our own life. So when it, going through the, 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 the documents, the applications I was talking about at the beginning, the vast majority of them would quote biblical verse to explain why they were doing. Now, there are all sorts of interesting, uh, uh, once I began to dig further into it, as I, as I said, many of them were Christians and socialists uh, in that particular kind of space that was very kind of influential in the 1930s. Um, but for strategic reasons, they would decide in their applications to stress their Christianity rather than a socialism because the tribunals would uh, be more sympathetic to a Christian pacifism than they would to a socialist pacifism. And how what's the sort of um, percentage of it? So if I present myself into a tribunal, what's what's up, what's the chance of getting off? I mean, if you've got 60,000, how many are actually given some form of official exemption? So about very roughly, and it's, it's, it's difficult to, 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 to get precise figures because some of them come through again and again and again for various reasons, about 10% get a complete exemption. Uh, um, uh, a kind of, thank you very much, we recognise you're a sincere uh, conscientious objector, you can now go off and do whatever you want to do. Um, about 60% of them are given uh, a conditional exemption um, you're exempted on the on the uh, on the grounds that you do ambulance work or agricultural work uh, and the rest uh, were rejected uh, but many of them would come back again and then accept a conditional exemption or simply give up uh, and then go into the army or go into the air force or go into the navy uh, and then so about another 10 percent would eventually end up in prison um, because they had refused to take up arms, they were then arrested, um, they, rather they refused conscription, they were then arrested at various paths in, but they would end up in some kind of detention, either military detention or, or, or a civilian jail, often Wormwood Scrubs. And what, what was their sort of motivation for not complying with the state? Was it that they did not believe in the state? Sometimes it was that they didn't believe in the state. Sometimes um, it was uh, kind of more complex and, and, and ambivalent and com uh, than that. And they, these are complex and ambivalent people. I mean, you often have the image um, 
uh, that um, con- you know, yeah, the, the line for Martin Luther here, like, conscience is about here I stand, I can do no other. These are absolutely resolute people. Um, they were very passionate, but they were also full of hesitations and doubts and uncertainties. Am I doing the right thing? Trying to understand different motivations, weighing up different reasons for doing it. But so some of them who went to prison were, uh, uh, I'm against the state or the state should not compel me to do this. Some of them would go to prison uh, as a way of demonstrating to themselves and to others that they had profound convictions. I believe this so much that I'm willing to go to jail for it. Uh, and this is a test, you know, a test of my faith uh, by going to jail. And often after they've gone to jail, the state would then turn around the tribunals and would then turn around and say, well, you know, you've proved to us that you're a sincere conscientious objector because you, you, you spent three months in Wormwood Scrubs. Um, we'll now give you some kind of exemption. So it was like in some ways going to jail was the test of the sincerity of their conscience. And how were they viewed by the, so I suppose, contemporary British society? I'm thinking going back to the First World War and the white feathers and and also, you know, the idea that when you look at posters, conscientious objects that are always portrayed as slightly effeminate and unmanly. Um, is there a yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting <laughs> contrast uh, because they could, it could be very, very difficult for them uh, in many ways and they could have fallings out with you know, their friends and their, their families and their partners, their girlfriends and boyfriends and their colleagues. And it's often they're the things they worried most about. It wasn't so much the general public, but it was about their intimate relations and what people would think about them and the implications for their mum or their, you know, their dad or their brother who was also serving in the military. And they were ostracised uh, sometimes. Uh, they were asked to leave churches church of england was often particularly hostile uh, to them but uh, on the whole particularly in contrast uh, to the first world war i would say they were treated with what you might call a, a grudging tolerance uh you know we we don't we don't uh, we don't agree with you but we respect your right to object uh, and i think that was largely because the the terrain of sacrifice, if you like, had shifted uh, from the First World War to the Second World War. So if in, if in the First World War, and this is a very rough uh, argument, the sacrifice and the death and the suffering was on the trenches. Uh, and if you were back home in England, in Scotland, in Wales, things were relatively okay. So it was very clear if you weren't on the front line, you weren't contributing, you weren't making sacrifices. Second World War was much more dispersed um, and civilians suffered sometimes more than the many people who were actually in the armed forces. Uh, you had the Blitz, uh, you had the Battle of Britain, you had rationing. And for a large part of the beginning of the war, it's important to remember that most of the British army was just sitting in barracks uh, and didn't see frontline service. So most of the British population didn't see conscientious object- objectors as therefore fundamentally different. Because, as, and again, going back to this thing, as long as they were willing to do something, uh, because there was a recognition that actually only a very small minority of people were seeing action on the front line, were firing uh, shots in anger, uh, as long as they were willing to. Uh, 
work in hospitals or help grow food or do ambulance work uh, elsewhere uh, they were kind of gradually respected particularly by soldiers interestingly enough and is there any evidence that people actually changed their pacifist views during the war when when things became i suppose more known um, about about various things that you know come out during the war yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting you know conscience doesn't stay still um it changes as the world around us changes people would say that you know their their views it yeah it's the the the, the, the important discussion about you know how much did we know when and where and who knew it um but there's quite a lot of conscientious objectors um who um who changed their mind particularly after the spring of 1940 um and they would take up they then join the military because they say they knew things often interestingly and i think significantly it wasn't as we would now tend to think it wasn't the image of the concentration camps and the holocaust that motivated them it was more the defeat of france and the idea that the the, the germans might be invading mainland Britain but around about spring of 1940 a lot of them changed their mind and and numbers registering uh, also decreased from about registering as conscientious objectors uh, decreased by about um, uh, 70% as well. Do the numbers increase of those seeking exemption in 44-45 once you know we're in Normandy and some people start seeing the casualties coming back uh, is there an increase that's a good question i don't actually know um whether they do i suspect not i suspect not uh but it's something i need to look at um by then the numbers were, 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 were pretty small and i think because people uh, had worked out partly and, and this is uh, a supposition uh worked out there were actually lots and lots of different if you wanted to avoid fighting there were lots of different ways in which you could do so um uh, uh you could um get a desk job in the military you could get a medical exemption you could um join one of the non-combatant you know you could join the royal army medical corps um you could become a chef um or a cook or you could go into logistics um or you could work in a reserves occupation you know a coal miner or something so, uh, and that's why when earlier I said it, it's, it's hard to, we don't really know um, how many there were. There were, you know, 60,000 who registered, uh, but I suspect there were many more people who felt ambiguous, who found other ways of working their way through the system. And did you did your book look at any sort of informal methods of avoiding military service? I suppose you've already touched on a number of those already. Yeah, so there were there were there were there were people who would uh, try and you know, oh, if I volunteer now, I might be able to get a Royal Army Medical Corps and Logistics Corps or or, 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 or something. Or uh, there were people who went on the run. Uh, there were a few people who went on the run, and uh, yeah, some of them would get uh, followed up. But yeah, on the whole, the you know the British state had other things to worry about, uh, so it didn't really kind of chase them. And some of them would desperately try and get caught. In the book, I describe um, uh, um, uh, one conscientious 
a guy called uh, uh, Roy Ridgeway, uh, who is is uh, um, his 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 claim for for exemption is turned down. He is sent into the um, uh, uh, the non-combatant corps. Uh, he still doesn't want to do that because it involves putting on a uniform. Uh, but they don't really know what to do with him. So he uh, and he's stuck there. He said, well, "What am I going to do? Someone needs to do something with me. I can't just sit here." So he um, says, "I know. I'll go AWOL." Uh, uh, and and uh, he even hitches a, a lift with a with an officer. Uh, yeah, he's down in Elfham and he's getting home to North London. And, and no one stops him. No one checks his papers. No one uh, uh, detains him. And he's deeply frustrated. He's deeply frustrated. And in the end, he arrives home and his dad says, you go back to Ilfracum, uh, uh and I'll ring, I'll ring the sergeant and tell them what you've done. And then finally they arrest him. Uh, so it, this, the book, uh, yeah, the, when you start digging around, is full of the system never works in a straightforward way. Uh, and people are constantly trying to uh, 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 deal with the contradictions in their own lives, but also in the way in which the state recruited people uh, to fight and distributed, distributed that. And does the, does the system they use in the Second World War, I don't know whether your book looks at this, how, I suppose I'll start that question again. So does the system and what they've learned in the Second World War sort of um, move into the period of uh, national service? Because I, I was thinking about the 1950s and obviously they've dropped the bomb and that sort of changes the dynamics a bit of the anti-war movement in Britain. Yes, it, 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 it does, although the numbers uh, were very, very small uh, by then in the school. Although, interestingly, there are some kind of very famous uh, figures in, in, in British public life, Harold Pinter, David Hockney, uh, who were conscientious objectors to, to national service. Uh, but the numbers are, 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 are minuscule uh, and there's no evidence. I haven't been able to find any evidence, at least, of um, uh, those people in national service who were sent to Korea um, uh, or Malaya or, 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 or elsewhere, or Suez, for example, of refusing to fight on the grounds of conscientious objection. I think they found other ways of doing it before they got to that point. And I imagine the British army was not particularly interested in, in sending these people because they were just annoying to have on the battlefield. You don't want someone who doesn't want to shoot a weapon uh, 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 at the front line. And my final question is, is, were there any famous people that we know who were conscientious objectors during the Second World War? Uh, lots, an amazing amount. When I started digging around, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, these, these are these are really, really important people. I think in the in the in the cultural life of Britain uh, in the in the twentieth century, and an amazing number of them were conscientious objectors. Although not that they hid it, this wasn't a kind of a, a famous thing about them. Some of them it was. People did know. So like. Uh, the composers Benjamin Britten and, and, and Michael Tippett, you know, their pacifism was central, I think, to their, their public persona, and they were uh, 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 peace campaigners all their life. But um, yeah, the actor James Mason or, or Paul Eddington, um, you had, you know, some of the um, uh, uh, um, uh, most senior legal figures in Scotland. You had multiple MPs uh, and members of the House of Lords. Um, the one of the a guy called Eric Baker, who was a, uh, a one of the two founders of, of Amnesty International, 
uh, was a, uh, a conscientious objector, and that's one of the reasons why Amnesty has, uh, you know, has prisoners of conscience was so central to the, at least to, to their early years. And there's a sense, I think, in which the the ethic, uh, which was largely one of kind of sacrifice and service, and uh, is kind of woven through large parts of our public life, particularly in the area of human rights and humanitarianism, uh, but also in, in the arts. So uh, in Scotland, two of the most significant Scottish poets, Edwin Morgan and, and, and Norman McCaig, were conscientious objectors. Uh, but everywhere you go, if you start digging around, you'll suddenly find out that these figures were, were conscientious objectors at one point. And finally, Toby, where can people get your book from? Uh, so, uh, Battles of Conscience, British pacifists in the Second World War, uh, uh, is available from all good independent bookshops, uh, published by uh, Chateau and Windus. Toby, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me.